fighting for our country. When you hear that phrase, you go where I go, I bet, the military. The brave individuals who raise their hands, who feel a deep sense of responsibility to serve. When their military days are done, they miss this sense of community, identity, and purpose that's part of the privilege of service, right? So many individuals and organizations work so hard to support vets through the myriad of challenges they face when they return. But maybe, just maybe, we need to focus a little bit more attention on the root cause. This whole notion of community, identity, and purpose, these muscles that they have built over time. Maybe, just maybe, we should be thinking differently. How might we provide veterans with the opportunity to put on a new uniform to continue to fight for a safer, more just world when they arrive home? Team Rubicon is an organization that asks that question and offers a compelling picture of just this. Deploying veterans along with first responders and civilians to navigate disaster relief in the United States and around the world. There are many lessons for us in the story of Team Rubicon about volunteerism, about the privilege and responsibility of service, and about the power of community, identity, and purpose in a life well-led. Team Rubicon's CEO, Art De La Cruz, is my guest today. Hope you will stay with us. A retired naval officer, Art was also a Top Gun instructor, an incredible organization that teaches the teachers. I think it's time for Art to do some teaching. Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. You can learn more at joangary.com. I think of myself as a woman with a mission to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today is no exception. Art De La Cruz is a first-gen Asian-American who served honorably for more than 22 years in the United States Navy, where he commanded a Navy strike fighter squadron, spent a year at, with McKinsey and Company as a Secretary of Defense Corporate Fellow, served as a Top Gun instructor, and made six combat deployments. This experience, coupled with two and a half years in the aerospace and defense sector in the roles of biz dev, strategy, and planning, prepared Art to lead the humanitarian and disaster relief organization, Team Rubicon. Team Rubicon, founded 12 years ago, serves communities by mobilizing veterans to continue their service by leveraging their skills and experience to help people prepare, respond, and recover from disasters and humanitarian crises. Founded in 2010, it has deployed folks to provide immediate relief to those impacted by disasters here in the U.S. and around the world. The folks at Team Rubicon like to say they are built to serve. Now, if you heard that bio and did not want to know more about this man and his work, can you please check your pulse? Art, it is more than a pleasure to meet you to, and to share your story with our listeners. Well, thank you for having me, Joan. So let's start. I read your bio. Art De La Cruz is a first-gen Asian-American who served honorably for more than 22 years in the United States Navy. I want to start there. Because that's an intro. There's a story there, isn't there? 
I would like to know sort of why for you at the deep level, tell us about, you know, a first-gen Asian American who decides to join the Navy. Who is that person? Yeah, well, I, I think kind of it's it's not so much how I got into that career or that journey in life. It's more what I learned along that journey. So I grew up in Minnesota. You know, I was the uh, son of Filipino immigrants who'd gone to the University of Minnesota. And I grew up in a wonderful community and thought I would move on and do what most kids in high school do. And I actually did it for a year and, and went to university. And my real draw to the Navy was largely rooted in not being satisfied with just going to college. Um, so I sensed that, you know, I missed a bit of adventure. I wanted to, uh, you know, continue to have some of the experiences I did in sports. And that's what kind of drew me to going out there and finding out if I could, you know, serve in the Navy. And it ultimately landed me uh, at the Naval Academy. And I had no predisposition or history of, you know, military legacy and service in my family. But once I was there, and especially once I left the Naval Academy and got to serve with men and women who'd had similar and, you know, different journeys in life, and we all ended up side by side with the same uniform, it began to unravel and, you know, create these incredible opportunities for me over those 22 years um, that largely shaped who I became and who I am today. I was um, watching a couple of interviews with you, and you were talking about finding your way into leadership roles in the United States Navy. And you noted that you were one of the precious few Asian American officers at the time that uh, you became one. And what you said was, um, and I, I think this is a quote, it kind of thrusts you into a role by virtue of who you are, where you just have to lead. And I, I, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. What is it about being the one of the precious few that it kind of compels you to lead? Yeah, I think this is this is one of those things where I found myself throughout my life wondering if, you know, who I was from an ethnicity standpoint was a contributor to where I got to where I was, right? So there's always this argument that maybe you're a beneficiary of some type of policy or, you know, who you identify as or who people see you as becomes a discriminator where you're at. And of course, as a, an arrogant and, and cocky, you know, person who was flying fighters in the Navy, merit was the only thing, you know, that kind of drove who I was. I knew that I had to be at the best at, at my task and my job and my unique role. And I was committed to that. Where the light bulb really turned on was on my first deployment. I was on the USS George Washington and there's four or 5,000 people on this floating city. And it dawned on me that Asian American sailors would identify and speak to me specifically. And that's when I really learned from a leadership standpoint that I was a representative of what was possible. I was a officer in a service and I'd largely be you know, approached by sailors that were Filipino or Korean or Chinese, and they viewed me. And again, there's there there aren't a lot of officers, and there especially aren't a lot of Asian American officers at this point in time. So they identified with me as the realm of the possible, and that is a responsibility that I didn't take lightly from that point on. 
And not only did, could you not take it lightly, it probably just felt really big, actually. Once you, once you had that aha moment, it must have felt quite big. Yeah, I don't know if big is the right word. It actually felt heavy, right? Yeah, you yeah, begin yeah. to understand that you have this different responsibility, this different weight, and it's it's part of your calculus in everything you do. Every moment of success and of triumph is a celebration you realize in moving, you know, it, people who are cheering you on that you barely even know that have associated with you in a passageway of a ship for 10 seconds or 20 seconds and maybe spoke to you for a minute they are all your silent cheerleaders and you're their advocate and kind of their pathfinder. The power of visibility is so breathtaking, in fact. And in fact, you know, in my, the work that I did in the LGBT movement was about, so my, the work that I did was with an organization called GLAAD, which focused on how the media told the stories of LGBT lives. And so they weren't necessarily stories about LGBT people, LGBT people. They could have been a story about retirement and included an LGBT couple, right? But that kind of visibility is so crucial to people's understanding of, you know, the the diversity of the world we live in and why why our experience is so much richer for it. I would agree wholeheartedly, Joan, and I, I applaud what you did because, frankly, I think you know, the tapestry of how people think and how their beliefs shift and how they grow, it's built on these, the power of these little moments. You know, you may view it as insignificant or chance or fleeting, but those little moments put together and shaped and contrasted against all of these different events that may shape a person's life are important potentially in that moment. But I think it really becomes an investment in future outcomes and thinking in how you approach and how you tell these little these little snippets that come into someone's mind as they listen to another story or they're in a position to make a decision, you know, those factors are incredibly important. So again, I think we're probably very similar in that, you know, these little moments become really untrivial in the grand scheme of life. Not only untrivial, but I, I'm constantly struck when I meet people like you and sort of my own journey is how many people are impacted by those small moments that you will never ever meet, right? That 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 to me that's that's that sort of the pebble that you throw that you toss in the pond and you just actually have, you know, no idea. I'm I have every confidence that you have heard from people who you served with that you had never met who thanked you or, you know, had some moment that felt small to you, but was really big to them. I mean, that's, that's, that's what representation carries with it, I think. Yeah. And I, I, honestly, I'm convinced that the most important things I've done, I probably don't remember. <laughs> I can't recall them. And, and I say that, you know, through this, this idea of these little micro acts that don't register in a way that's super, super important, become that flicker of light or that moment of revelation, or that baseline that someone starts a further discussion from, it's these little things that you intrinsically do that, again, create to that heaviness and that weight of leadership and representation, visibility, and all those things that you've uh, espoused over your career. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about Team Rubicon. And I kind of gave a sense of your sort of post 
military trajectory, but you've found your way here. Tell me a little bit, maybe a little bit about how you found your way to Team Rubicon and let listeners uh, really sort of bask in the power and impact of what your organization does. Yeah, maybe I can frame it as not so much finding my way to Team Rubicon, but finding my way back to the purpose and things that really mattered in my life is probably a better way to frame it. You know, we've, yeah, so we started out talking about, you know, those 22 years uh, in the Navy. And if there's one thing I can tell you about the military, you serve with amazing men and women. You are like surrounded and, and everything you do is built around this notion and this mission of goodness, right? Of delivering impact and, and playing a significant part in it. And then you kind of create that identity as you work through it. And that was really important to me. That's why I stayed in for 22 years. I love the people I had the opportunity to influence and lead. I love the responsibility I had. I love this notion that I was waking up and doing something meaningful. And uh, after I retired, which is a really, really difficult decision for me, you know, at 22 years, I looked at my wife and my four kids and we said, hey, maybe it's time to do something different. And we made that tough decision to take off the uniform and go into our next life. And one of the things that was quickly apparent as I transitioned was, wow, I missed those things in the military that were generally surrounding, you know, community identity and purpose. But I knew I had to grow in my other capacities. And that's actually when I started volunteering with Team Rubicon to kind of augment this missing component of my life, community, identity, and purpose as I, as I made what I think was a really powerful transition that I wouldn't trade a day of in the commercial sector. But I found my way back to Team Rubicon, largely through that relationship with the co-founder and CEO, Jake Wood, who I developed a friendship with, who said, you know, you've learned a lot in these past three years. You've obviously done something in the 22 years prior. Maybe there's a fit and fill here where you can join Team Rubicon and help us grow and scale. Uh, and the rest is history. So you, you volunteered for Team Rubicon. Tell me about that volunteer experience. Yeah, well, immediately in my first year after I retired, you know, one of the fortunate coincidences in life was that Team Rubicon's headquarters was right next to where I was working. So I went over there uh, and developed a friendship with uh, Jake Wood, who is an incredible and amazing leader. Uh, and we just started talking, you know, he would ask me what I thought about something they were going to do from a business perspective. You know, I would do some research and provide my my thoughts on it. And it was just kind of back and forth, you know, as this happened over the course of really two and a half years that we, we kind of, uh, informally speed dated each other until we finally <laughs> said, Hey, let's, let's actually go out on a date. Here's a position, you know, that I think you should consider. So tell me how it operates. So if I'm a vet and I raise my hand and I say, Art, I, I want in. So, so what's that experience like for me as an incoming volunteer? Yeah. So I think like most volunteer models, I treat our volunteers as our most important customer. Ultimately, we have to deliver value to that man or woman, veteran, civilian, first responder, whatever they might be, because they're given us, you know, probably the most priceless thing they can, which is time. And they've made personal decisions to say, I'm going to burn up my vacation. I'm going to spend time away from my family. I'm going to do all of these different things. So the starting point is saying, how do I fulfill this volunteer's journey? And to your question, what do we want to do? 
We want to ensure that their time is spent performing some mission that aligns with what they want to get out of it. And generally for us, it's disaster response. They want to know that people who've been impacted by natural disasters and humanitarian crises are going to have a better tomorrow because they've interacted with Team Rubicon. So that's one customer set. Think about that. And just actually, I listen to you say that. It isn't you join the you join the military for meaning purpose, but it is to it is also about building that better tomorrow, isn't it? Yeah, that's the hope. I think that's you know one of the things you hope for, and I think that's just one of the many wants as volunteers give this tremendous gift of time. Right, they give and they get. So we want to make it purposeful. We want to make sure that their time is well spent. We want to make sure that they feel safe that they, you know, have this sense of inclusion. They have this sense of being able to directly tie to the mission, that they're going to do things where they can actually exercise skills that they want to exercise. One of the most common questions, you know, I have is, you know, people say, this is, this is what I do. How can I help Team Rubicon? And one of my first questions is, what do you want to do? We have, you know, medical doctors that the last thing they want to do is more surgery or more, you know, treating, you know, patients, they want to grab a sledgehammer and they want to tear wet drywall out of a flooded home. And that's their escape. That's their connection to community identity and purpose. And they're kind of balanced to spending all the time in the operating room or at the hospital, wherever it might be. Um, So we have to deliver along those fronts and the experience feels very military the good parts of the military, where again, we identify as gray shirts is what we call our volunteers. We put on a uniform, they all go through an onboarding course, uh, and they understand our culture and our values. And the hope is that they begin to sense whether or not they're fit or fill. And then we can begin this process of asking them to deploy. And we might ask someone 100 times, and they say no 99 times, but that one time they say yes, it's great. Or they may say yes on the first go. But our goal is to get them into these situations where they can share their skills and their experience and their energy to make a difference for those people who have largely no other option as they're they're exhausted every resource as we show up. And, you know, we can see it in them going, wait a second, is this some kind of a scam? You're doing this for free. You're going to remove all this debris after the tornado or you're going to muck out my house after it's been flooded. And that's a really unique and special moment where you say, yeah, we're doing this because we want to make a difference and we want to help you. Yeah. So what does, maybe a tactical question, what does Team Rubicon, how does it support the volunteers? So if I say I can, I would like to do this and you call and say, we need people who can do what you want to do. What's the obligation I have and what's the commensurate piece of the puzzle that you fill for me? Yeah, it can, you know, starting first with the practical question of how long is this going to take? How long will I be gone? If it's a local disaster and you can drive in, you know, serve for the eight hours of that day, then that's great. If we are going to fly you across the country, we'd ideally, because of the efficiency you'd gained, you know, have you join us for seven days and we'll prep you. And from the second your foot hits the ground out your front door, we're going to have your ticket for you. We're going to ensure that you're met at the airport. You know, you're going to, and we have kind of this grittiness about us, you know, don't expect that uh, the St. Regis or some other hotel is going to be your home. You're going to 
you're going to be taking your rucksack that might have gathered 20 years of dust since you left the military. And you're going to be, you know, have that joy of setting up a cot again in a gym where we're going to have people stay. And then, you know, you'll wake up in the morning and you'll be led. You'll have opportunities to lead uh, and you'll have meaningful work and you'll make a difference in the field. Um, so, you know, we always look at it as, you know, how do we apply these resources to the communities that need it most? You're not going to be mucking out a, a second summer home. You're going to be impacting the ability for people based on, you know, vulnerability, the realities of economics and where people are in their lives. You will make a difference for those people. So, right now, today, sort of you have a universe of, presumably a universe of, of volunteers, and there's a universe of places they can be deployed. Give me a sense of scale here. So, so right now, how, you know, I, I, at any given time, how many folks will be deployed for Team Rubicon from, a, you know, a, a volunteer base of how many? I'm just trying to, trying to get a sense of the picture. Yeah, so we have a volunteer base of 150,000 plus registered volunteers. Wow. I think of that as kinetic energy. We have their emails, we can contact them, they're largely ready to go. And then we, we see if it lines up with what they need to do. And what they need to do are things where communities have rapid onset of unmet needs, and they might uh -huh. have varying levels of skills. And I can talk through as an example today. Please. Today... On the 27th or whatever it is of January, I guess the 27th of January, mm -hmm. 2022, we have people still serving in Kentucky after those terrible tornadoes hit. So probably of course you do. 50 to 60 volunteers there, you know, they're living in a gym or in a Baptist church. They're being hosted and day by day, they go out and they help people clear debris or they're knocking down homes, you know, that have to be demolished or they're tarping roofs. So they are there. We have a flooding that's occurred. If, if you paid attention to the Northwest, just really, really anomalous mm -hmm. amounts of rain there. We have people in communities there that are helping flooded homeowners stabilize their homes. You know, how do you pull out all of those wet materials that have been literally drenched uh, because of this flooding and, you know, have all of these different risks from mold, you know, all those things that happen, terrible things that happen when things like drywall or carpet get wet. Yep. We have people with very specialized skills, EMTs and medical providers that have redeployed to the Navajo Nation because with this latest variant of Omicron, it's literally overwhelmed those hospitals and we have the ability to help and augment those uh, incredible heroes that are working in these hospitals uh, because they're overwhelmed, right? Not mm -hmm. unlike other areas in the country. And then the other unique one that we're doing today is in, I believe, five and soon eight different cities we're partnering with resettlement agencies to make sure that donations can be collected and distributed to our Afghan allies who are resettling in families as they leave, you know, the eight primary bases, which we incidentally, you know, helped with. So I think in that context, there's some things that weren't in our business plan two years ago. On March 12th of 2020, if you'd asked me, we were going to have a, a pandemic, you know, that caused all sorts of unmet needs that we uniquely as veterans had the ability to answer. We could help with food insecurity by volunteering at food banks. We had to continue to add, you know, work after disasters. Um, the other interesting thing that we've been able to keep through this is we committed 
to the long-term recovery of people impacted by natural disasters. We've been in Houston since Hurricane Harvey. I think we've rebuilt 113 homes. We rebuilt 500 roofs in Puerto Rico. We're in Selma, Alabama. This they were impacted by a tornado and a uh, hurricane, uh, Hurricane Zeta. But because it was, it never made the news on uh, the Weather Channel or CNN because you know it, it hadn't happened. We are there in this invisible disaster, and we've rebuilt, I think, ten homes there. What um, it's, it's interesting listening to you talk about all of these different places, knowing that. There are organizations on the ground in these communities also. And I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how Team Rubicon collaborates, creates coalitions with other organizations who are also in this, you know, in this space and sort of how you think about collaboration and coalition. Yeah, I think you use exactly the right words there, collaboration and coalition. I think a lot of people kind of default to competition in those yes. situations and nothing could be further from the truth. If there's one thing I can guarantee about natural disasters and humanitarian crisis is need far outstrips supply of solutions. Um, So you can't go into these thinking you're competing. And what it allows us to do, knowing that there's an overwhelming amount of work and knowing that there aren't enough agencies and people dedicated to this is it allows you the opportunity to say, hey, we got to do what we do best and partner for the rest. We'll work side by side with the Red Cross and our, our missions won't overlap. We'll work side by side with the Mennonites or whoever might be or Habitat for Humanity where yes. our missions work side by side. So in those moments, you know, that's particularly important. I think probably the most important thing about disasters is this idea of community and localization. They impact local communities and that is solved locally. So one of the big things that Team Rubicon uh, is committed to is building as many, as much capacity as we can by having volunteers across the country. So it's local response. It's people who know the people and they know the environment and are connected that are bringing some type of response and help. My listeners may be interested in this. I know I am. How is Team Rubicon funded? Yeah, so there's a, we like to say there's a million things more important than money at Team Rubicon, but unfortunately, they all cost money. We're funded by incredible donors. They're individuals across the country, their foundations, and their corporations largely. Uh, we currently don't take, haven't had you know, any significant funding from the government as we do this. What's interesting about kind of our approach to this is, you know, one of the things I like to say as we begin to, you know, tread down this idea of a nonprofit is Team Rubicon and the way I like to lead it is I don't want to run a nonprofit organization. I want to run a for impact organization. Instead of generating shareholder value, I have to align our leadership team, our staff, our volunteers to show every donor that it's not just about a donation, it's about creating return in this idea of impact. And I'll give you a couple of examples. You know, I like to say, we have this military veteran who I said, again, a volunteer is one of our most important customers. A donor gives us $100 or $200 that allows us to train them to use a chainsaw safely. I like to tell a donor or an investor in this case that, hey, that 100 
dollars became a person who volunteered for two weeks in 2019 and removed, you know, however many cubic feet of debris. This person was so inspired that in 2021, they became an instructor. And as an instructor, they trained 10 other people. And my hope is to have this person to return for the next 10 years, because what it allows us to do is, even if it's seemingly an insignificant gift to Team Rubicon, is that legacy of generosity lives on in every volunteer we have. Another example is something where, you know, someone donates money. They say Hurricane Maria destroyed all of these roofs in Puerto Rico. It's, I'll call those donors up year after year as hurricanes skirt Puerto Rico and say, yeah, you gave in 2017 or 2018, but I want you to know that here in 2021, a family is dry, their belongings are safe, it became a centerpiece in the community for security. And to be able to look at people and say, it's, it wasn't just a donation. It wasn't just that moment in time. You have made a difference that these people see day after day after day. And certainly our volunteers see in the, their connection to community identity and, and purpose and ideally in growing what they can do when the next disaster strikes. I love everything about those stories and What's interesting is your experience in the military taking that idea of meaning and identity and purpose. It lives in the DNA of the person who writes the check too, right? And that when they give that check, it's not just a check, right? It's not a transaction. It is, I want my hard-earned dollars to have meaning and purpose and impact. It actually, it actually gives me a sense of identity. It gives me a feeling of purpose to get that call and know. It fuels me and feeds me. And I do believe that people who shy away from fundraising or people who, who yeah, people who, who don't get fundraising, that's what they don't get. Don't you think, Art? Yeah, it's not, it's not so much a transaction is a conversation and an opportunity to take ownership of making a difference. And, you know, one thing that I think doesn't really translate into this, and it doesn't have to be part of it, is is the amount of the gift. You know, for some people, you know, $10 is a really, really difficult decision for them to make because they're saying no to something else. It's either a future event, a current need, whatever it might be. Um, So we don't take that responsibility lightly. One of our cultural principles is your mother's a donor. You know, it's as if your mom gave you $10. And sometimes mom is saying, yeah, actually you need to spend money to get some good shoes. You need to make investment. And it allows us now to build what I believe is kind of the, what I'd really love for Team Rubicon to be known for is trust-based philanthropy. We trust that men and women from Team Rubicon will be there when the next disaster strikes, because then you're not fundraising in the moment, you're fundraising towards the future. Because I have to build every day that we decide to deploy to a natural disaster is like our World Series. And you can't build a team, you know, as the game is starting, you want that team to take the field. And that takes investment, which takes trust. And it takes a demonstrated track record of performance prior to that, where they can look at our organization and say, you know, based on what they do, I trust that they will use this money in a way that's powerful. It will be aligned to the right needs and the the specific um, gaps that they see. And I trust they're going to do the right thing. If we can do that, 
I think we're doing right for our volunteers. We're doing right for the people who donate to us. And we're certainly doing right for the people that we take the opportunity and are able to serve. Indeed. The Nonprofit Leadership Lab is led by Joan Gary and is the world's best online community for leaders of small nonprofits. Learn how to raise more money, build the board of your dreams, grow a large audience of supporters, and so much more. To learn more and request an invitation to become a member, please go to nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. That's nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. We're chatting with Art Dela Cruz, who is the CEO of Team Rubicon, the humanitarian and disaster relief organization that is fueled largely by volunteers who are military veterans. And he is a uh, 22-year veteran of the United States Navy. There are two more sort of philosophical questions I wanted to dig into before we, we part ways today. What have you learned about volunteers, right? You are a volunteer-driven organization, full stop. What have you learned about volunteerism? Because, you know, and before, I'll, I'll, I'll riff for a minute before you answer. I don't actually think that the nonprofit sector or the four impact sector, and by the way, I'm on the, always on the hunt for a term that actually is a, what, these, what the sector is about, not what it's not. And uh, so I like that a lot. I don't think we do volunteerism very well, actually. I feel like we end up, our sector is so hyper-focused on getting things right. I think that CEOs of nonprofits have certain kinds of type A personalities where they letting go to a volunteer uh, just doesn't, you know, sometimes is hard. There's a skepticism about whether or not they will deliver. And so I, I sometimes think there's a, an inappropriate bias against volunteerism. And so I really am interested in what you have learned and any way I can use my platform to shift people's thinking about the power of volunteerism, because I, I, would, I would love for you to jump in on that. Yeah, I think, you know, kind of the starting point for volunteerism is uh, I don't under, you can't, uh, it's important to not overlook just a person raising their hand and saying, I'm ready to make a difference. You know, they, they say that, uh, you know, the difference between empathy and compassion is, you know, when people with empathy feel the pain, you know, people with compassion pack up their bags, get in their car and show up. It is a, a disaster site. So that leap is incredibly, incredibly valuable as you do this. So, so you can't say no, everyone brings some type of type of skill and some type of desire to make a difference. That's, that's the, the first piece of volunteering that I think is really, really important. And then I think what's really important is how do you nurture and continue that feeling is you have to thank people that show up and make a difference. You have to have them be, to be able to experience the tangible difference that they've made. It's a hug from a homeowner. It's a pat on the back from someone else who's, you know, sweated um, for eight hours in a field with you as you're cutting logs or moving debris. Um, so you have to create this experience um, that's valuable to them. And I think the other part of it is culture, right? There's so many different ways to volunteer all of these different things. And every one of them is important and every one of them um, ideally is good. So there's this idea that there has to be a fit and fill. 
in what you be able, you know, you're able to deliver. So for Team Rubicon, I think, you know, one of the things that we really, really concentrate on is making sure that, you know, it, it's not for everyone. The people who come to our ranks have ownership of the mission. They have ownership of the decisions that they're properly equipped and probably most importantly, properly trained. Properly trained, right. Which is, which is again, to our earlier part, it's an investment that we have to make because then they are able to generate these outcomes in a manner that they're proud of. Yes. You know, that, that they, they can feel look that back. they feel yeah. success. Yeah. They feel and that impact and own it. They right? own it. They, they take a piece of that with them and then they can't wait to do it again and again and again. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, as a society, if we can get used to this notion of community and localization and every act can have not a me consequence, but a we consequence, you're off and running. And that's what I believe, you know, sometimes we forget as a society that, and, and that's the beautiful thing about a disaster, right? It's a, it's a level playing field when disasters strike. Everyone gets in, you know, impacted. And, you know, if we treated everyone the way we do on a, a day of disaster, and if we did that every day, you know, we'd be a better society writ large. That's so interesting. I think that that's another piece of the puzzle that's really important to amplify here is you have to make an investment in your volunteers in or, right in order for the experience to be a three-dimensional I learned something I gave something I felt like I had an impact and I believe that far too infrequently organizations don't make that level of investment or I was chatting with someone who volunteered in the kitchen of a an organization called God's Love We Deliver in New York and she evolved from a kitchen volunteer and ultimately became the board chair not not overnight certainly but that organization invested in those volunteers and it wasn't just about those meals came down the, the folks came down and explained what was going on at God's Love We Deliver what the larger sector was about right and so I wasn't just chopping carrots I was I understood the context in which I was chopping carrots and it actually fueled those volunteers to want to do more. And so I think that that's, there's all kinds of investments that you make in volunteers that pay dividends for them and for your organization. I think the last question I, I, I have is I, I really wanted to talk about veterans and their experience returning. And you get to totally disagree with me here on this uh, art. I saw one video about Team Rubicon that the organization does something to tackle changing the narrative of veterans as a society problem we have to solve. And I, I wonder if you want to talk about that. I feel like the, is the narrative society needs to help veterans and that actually you're asking a different question and maybe, maybe they both need to be asked, right? How do we engage a world of individuals who feel a duty to service and keep that fire blazing in each one of them by providing the opportunity to fight for people of our country and around the world in a different kind of way. I'm really intrigued as we think about society and the veterans who return. And I, I, I wondered if you might reflect on some of the how we think about veterans when they return home and, and, and those statements that I, that I read. Yeah, I, I guess I'd first start by saying, you know, obviously after 20 years of war, uh, there are people or, or wars before that, there are people who bring back significant scars. There are people who 
we are obligated as a citizens to ensure that those wounds that they they bear because of their desire to serve are addressed and resourced uh, and are, are put out in the public and, and, and served. I think the other element that's incredibly important is to understand that being a military veteran ex- allows you to have unique exposure to skills and experience that could be really, really beneficial. You know, I think of the end of World War II and what the country did, you know, this incredible generation and and what we had, a lot of it was fueled by veterans returning, you know, from, from World War II. So the way I like to frame it now, and I think a way that's really positive and it it dispels this truth that a veteran is this broken person that comes back that deserves our sympathy and the thank yous and all of these different things. You can look at every veteran and say, they bring back an incredible gift and value. And the way I like to say it is don't think of military service as the creation of an infantry man or woman who was, you know, shot at or you know, or someone who was out there diffusing bombs or, you know, doing logistics or operations. Think of each man and woman who wore the uniform as someone who went to a really, really unique college. Because if you view it in that way, you can begin to disaggregate it and go, these are the courses that they went through. Art went through a course in organizational leadership. He certainly went through a course in crisis management. He went through a course in public speaking. He went through a course in making decision-making in ambiguous situations. And it allows you to now view it as these are the assets that the country has not asked them to reuse and reapply when they return and they're looking for this transition and what they're going to do next. Because again, they're, they're like muscles and they're unique unique uh, things that, again, that's our secret sauce. You know, that's why military veterans and first responders and the civilians who join us are so good in a disaster because it's not unlike the experiences they had in Iraq or Afghanistan or Korea or Vietnam, where there's uncertainty, there's a lack of 100% clarity, but there is a need to make a decision and move forward. That becomes a very, very powerful narrative in painting the picture of this incredible asset, 17 million military veterans in the country, how do we ask them if they'd consider using those same muscles, if they'd consider using each of those classes that they had in these unique situations where they can make a difference for a community, be it local or national or all of these different things. And I think that becomes you know a really, really powerful way that helps frame all types of service. I mean, you know, today in present day, I don't think it's unlike what nurses and doctors are going through in hospitals across the country. You know, they're at war right now. So, you know, how do we, how do we view our obligations to them in the years that come for the incredible, you know, weight that they've borne over these past 700 days? There's, uh, I, uh, I am so grateful for this conversation. And I, I also just want folks who are listening there's a this conversation could be lifted up and away from military veterans and to all of those people who for whom maybe the pandemic has created a certain wake up call for people that life is short and i need a life you know i right i need to get out of the stands and onto the field but I just, I do believe that what Art is talking about is, is tapping into 
the lives of individuals for who are hardwired to live a life that is has meaning, identity, purpose, and community. And and we all have that too in some way. We might not have gotten such a deep dive into it, but we all have that. And I believe that that's been heightened in this last 700 days as well, as people really think about what does a life of meaning look like? And I think it is incumbent upon nonprofit leaders to really to really reflect on that and think about the lessons art has shared with us today and how they apply to the you know to the community you live in and the sphere of influence of your organization its footprint and who's in that and what kind of opportunity can you present them to you know to really fuel that meaning and purpose and identity in their lives yeah and i'd i'd offer joan that I think if we do this right, right, the the state I'd love to see, you know, come and it's probably nirvana, but this hope that, you know, we can begin to categorize participants in this, these acts of greater good as citizens, right? It's, it's something we are, are, and then the identity that falls under it is, you know, Art Delacruz is a citizen that happens to be a veteran. He understands that a calling of action and the obligations he has to his neighbors and his community, because then it becomes so much easier to say, yes, yes, let's make a difference. Yes. Let's volunteer. Yes. Let's, let's, you know, let's fund this initiative. And we begin to tackle problems that are seemingly everywhere. And, you know, we started eating that, that giant elephant. We continue to make, uh, make the world a better place. And and to that point, the notion of imagine, you know, imagine a world where that word citizen is embraced and understood to be, a do have a duty of service to. And I do love the word neighbor. I think it's a very um, rich word, right? Where everyone is your neighbor. And yeah, maybe it's nirvana, but that that it is. It's something worth shooting for. There's no question. Art de la Cruz, thank you very much for sharing your um, your story and for the work you do, um, both the people you serve and the the volunteers you serve and the you know, gifts you give both of those cohorts and your donors. Um, how lucky you are! Thank you for having me, Joan. Uh, certainly, and and to all of your listeners, listeners, I think thank all of you because obviously, if you're listening to this. Um, I think you're you're wired like many of us. You're built to serve and ready to go. So thank you. All right. Built to serve, ready to go. We're ready to go too. So thanks as always for the work you do. Talk to you next time. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful too. Lastly, thank you for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.